morning, church. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we have a lot of work to do this morning, so uh, we're just going to jump right in. While you're turning to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we'll, we'll be starting in verse 16, um, I'll mention kind of the series that we're in. We're in a series for the beginning of the year called Revision. We're kind of renewing our church's 2020 vision. And we do this about once a year in some capacity where we circle back to the why, the how, and the what of the church and of, of Ambassador Church specifically. Last week, Pastor Ray talked about um, in, in the start of our series just about understanding what the church is and why the church exists, what God's plan is for the church. And in the next few weeks, we'll be explaining uh, the three M's of Ambassador Church, multi-ethnic, missional, and multiplying. Today, we're talking about missional. Um, what does it mean to be a missional church? What does it mean for us to be missional Christians? Um, I'll do my best to explain it in a metaphor and then kind of a, as clearly a statement as I can. So this is my favorite coffee mug. Uh, this is a coffee mug that I bought, or I got it when I graduated from, from grad school. So, you know, the most expensive mug you've ever purchased. <laughs> and, uh, and so every time I drink out of it, uh, I think, sweet, sweet accomplishment. Because I finished grad school. I mean, I actually graduated. They let me have the piece of paper that proves it. Um, and uh, I am a bit of a coffee snob. I'm not sure how, how, what your thoughts are about this sort of thing, but I think of, the, I'm, of all the things I'm particular about in my life, coffee is probably number one. And uh, coffee reminds me of the church in this sense. If you're going to make a great cup of coffee, there's a lot of things that you have to do to make it awesome. And if any one part of those steps, any one ingredient in the process is off, it kind of messes up the whole thing. So for instance, if the water's too hot, uh, it's too oversaturated, it's too overextracted, it kind of tastes burnt and gross. If it's too cool, it tastes kind of sour. If the grind is too big, it tastes kind of oily or something like that. And if it's too fine, it's, it's something else weird. And even if the grind is inconsistent, some big chunks, some small chunks, then it tastes too complex and there's not one flavor to it and it just kind of tastes like Starbucks. So if, you, uh, if the beans are from a bad source, it can be gross. If the beans are old, it can be a gross source. If, you, if the way you make the coffee is off, um, you know, if you, if you use my little press thing or if you use a pour over, if you use a coffee pot or whatever, like that can mess it up too. But when all of the stars align and the grinder works great and the beans are great and the water's the right temperature and the water is not dirty or gross tasting, then all of a sudden you're able to like wake up in the morning to like the most magnificent cup of coffee. And that's like my goal in life. I'm like chasing the dragon. It's like so, like, it's so much work, but it can be so beautiful. The church is the same way. So let's say our church consists of like one person with like a really big personality and some leadership gifts. That's like hot water. And hot water alone will not make you coffee. It's just hot water. And let's say you have one person in the church who's great at outreach and hospitality. They're great at welcoming people in and making them feel like family. That might be the beans. But then all of a sudden you get like the leadership person, the teacher, the hospitality person, a person for whom life has kind of kicked them in the teeth and they've been through some stuff. And maybe you're that person where you're going like, life has been rough on me, but I know how to love people who are also hurting. You get that person involved. And then all of a sudden the church becomes like a great cup of coffee. Like it takes all of those ingredients pressed together, heated up, and then it, it, it creates something beautiful. 
I think it's really common and easy in our day to say, I don't like organized religion, or I'm skeptical of the church, or I've been burned or hurt by the church. Um, that's part of drinking coffee, too. Like, sometimes you sip it too hard, you know, and it can burn you. Or sometimes you get a bad cup. That doesn't negate the reality of something that can be beautiful and powerful and energy-producing and, and delightful in your life. What I'm trying to say is you need the church to, to create that beautiful thing that is the body of Christ, working with God's Holy Spirit. A bunch of messed up people who are combining their gifts and abilities and experiences and personalities and cultures to create this beautiful thing. And the church needs you. We're not as beautiful without you. Warts and all, a bunch of messed up sinners pressed together can create something quite magnificent. In a sense, that's what a missional church is because there is kind of an older conception of the church that says church is primarily one person, usually the guy with the microphone, who is gifted or has a fantastic personality or has some amazing leadership gifts, and then you come, sit there, and then watch that person be a good, be a really great Christian. That there's kind of an old conception of church that says, come and participate, and maybe you consume some religious goods and services from a church. But a missional church is saying that everyone in the church is gifted and called to be a missionary in the relational world, in the sociological world in which we live. That's what a missional church is. That we're not just consumers of religious stuff. We're not just coming to church to be a part of a thing where I can put my kids into a room where somebody else can teach them about how to know Jesus, but that all of us are missionaries. All of us are gifted. All of us are a needed part of this beautiful thing that is the body of Christ. So we are a missional church. And in Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul living out his faith, living out his giftedness, living out his experience in the marketplace of Athens. So as I said, Acts chapter 17. And before we read it, I'll just share with you kind of the big idea for this morning, which is in us reading Acts chapter 17, we're not just looking for motivation to live on mission. We need to be equipped. And so Paul's going to show us, if we, if we pay attention to his life and what he did in Athens, we'll see that we can live on mission by doing the four things that Paul did in Athens. Taking the gospel into the everyday stuff of life, feeling for people who are far from God, recognizing the idols that we worship, and presenting Jesus and the resurrection. Those are the four things that Paul did. Those are the things that we do. And if we do them, we will be something beautiful for our city, for our neighborhoods, in our homes, and in every place that we go. So it's almost kind of like, where did Paul go? He took it into Athens. Uh, what did he feel? He felt for these people who are far from God. What did he see? He recognized that we worship idols. And for that he, uh, what did he do? He presented Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 17 Verses 16, 16 through 27. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what, it is, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. 
all of the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of these people became, became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. If we are going to live on mission, the first thing we need to do is go where Paul went. We need to take the gospel into the everyday stuff of life. I think it's possible for us to talk about the gospel and just make it kind of a buzzword that we just mean whatever we want it to mean. Um, sometimes we think of the gospel as in gospel music, which is not necessarily what the Bible talks about. Uh, sometimes we talk about the gospel as meaning the ABCs of Christianity, the basics of uh, God, sin separates us from God, Jesus bridged that gap, that's, and then have faith in Jesus, and then you become a Christian. But the gospel to Christians, the gospel to Paul, is more than the ABCs of Christianity, and I've said this a few times before, that it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's the entrance to Christianity. It's the motivation for your life of faith. It's the source of your joy. It's the reason you have hope. It's the thing you continue to access as a Christian every single day. And it's the thing in this instance that is motivating Paul to leave a place of comfort and go out into Athens. It says that he went into Athens and then he went into the marketplace. And then they asked him, will you come into the Areopagus? We have three locations we have to kind of acknowledge here. Athens. Athens is, in this time of the world, the center of cultural life in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't the center of the political life, that would be Rome, but it was still the center of all arts, all philosophy, all religious kind of debate. And as you might notice about the way movies work and the, the way award shows work in our time and the way that the media works and the, the TV shows that you watch and how that shifts in culture, you'll know that Athens was the source. It was the hub. It was the creative center in which those ideas would make their way out into all the rural areas, all the different political opinions, all of the different artistic expressions and all the philosophy, all of the education and all of the business. Paul is being very strategic here to go into the central hub of the beast and taking the gospel for what it sounds like is the first time they're hearing about Jesus and the resurrection. So when you look in 17, it says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. 
with all of those who happen to be there. The marketplace is a difficult Greek word to translate because uh, it's the agora. It's, it's, it has a name. It's, a, it's not just a marketplace. It's the marketplace. And if you can imagine in the ancient world, they don't have the same technology that we have. And so everything that would need to be done, every kind of interaction between people would have to be done face-to-face. They didn't have Facebook to communicate something about politics, and so politicians had to debate and meet in the agora. And if you had to do business, you would have to go to a place where you could make sure to see all the business people, and so you had to go to the Agora. If you, uh, well, commentators mentioned that there in, in the Athenian Agora would have been temples of worship, law courts, state offices, libraries, shops, concert halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. And so who was there? Every kind of person was there. It says that there were Jews, that they were God-fearing Greeks, meaning Greeks who were sensitive to the Jewish religion. There were Epicureans. Epicureans were like existentialists. They were people who were trying to seek as much joy and passion and experience as they could in life. Uh, overall meaning kind of be darned. Uh, but uh, that's what an Epicurean would believe. And a Stoic would believe in being a self-sufficient, high-functioning, even-keeled, unemotional thinker. I'm going to go to this, the right school. I'm going to study under the right people. I don't necessarily need a God of influencing my heart. I'm self-sufficient. That's what a Stoic is. And so Paul is preaching to these just very different, some religious, some irreligious, some partiers, some very kind of like buttoned-up personalities, recognizing that all of these different people need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes in to this hub with all kinds of different opinions. And again, it's the place where you would stand up on a corner and say, I have a, a historic event that you haven't heard about. And I've got an opinion about God that you might not have heard or hear about. And so Paul stands up in the corner and starts to debate. And they say, he sounds like a bird picking up seeds. He, what, what is this babbler trying to say? That's uh, the idiomatic uh, phrase in the Greek. Is to say, he sounds like just kind of a random person babbling. What is he doing? But then they start listening and they say, oh, interesting. You're answering some questions for us. We should take you into the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is kind of the, the board of people in charge of politics and education and religious belief in the city. So that's the setting for the whole situation. But you'll notice this kind of sharing of faith doesn't really make sense to us in 2020. In fact, I would say the, the most rejected form of evangelism and sharing your faith in 2020 is standing up on a corner and saying, Listen, everyone, your opinions are wrong. Wait, let me turn my megaphone on. And then, uh, like, it's, it's just the number one hated form of sharing your faith. But it doesn't just go there, right? It's like we live in a time and a place where I think a lot of us think that the religious world should only be kept private. Like that you, you ought not to share your faith. You ought not to ever speak up to say, I actually think my God is great and is supreme. Like we live in a time that says, uh, and, and maybe you even have said this in some version of your own life, Christian, or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're not sure where you stand with God, where we have this kind of default belief that says, we ought not to speak up too much about our opinions about God or about what we think is true about God. And that is popular today, but there actually was some stream of that belief going on in Athens at the time because it was a pagan culture back then. And most religious commentators are noticing that our culture is increasingly pagan as well. 
in the Athenian world, everyone would have had their own kind of God. If you were Athenian, you'd have a God. If you were from some other town or from some other nation state, you'd have a God. And so it was kind of the belief back then that everyone's got their own gods. Like different jobs had a God. And if you wanted to have a really, like a lot of party, you would worship the God of partying. And if you wanted beauty, you would worship the Greek God of beauty. And so it was the opinion back then. Everyone's kind of got their own God and their own religious belief. And you shouldn't just step in and say that my God is better than your God. We've all kind of got our own urban center. Everyone hangs out. Everyone kind of agrees to disagree. Life. And you shouldn't step up and say that you have the truth. Does that sound familiar to you in the world we live in today? So what's Paul's response? You'll notice Paul's response uh, in this little sermon that we get to witness here. He says, hold on a minute. You might say that there is not one supreme God. You might say that everyone's got their own opinion about God. But wait a minute. What if there is a God who is supreme over all other gods? What if our God is the creator of heaven and earth? What if God marks out history and marks out the boundaries of nation states? And what if he is supreme? And you can see some philosophy from Paul saying, and I don't mean to get too logical for you, but just track with me. If that is who God is, and we have credible reason to believe that he has revealed himself to us, then it stands to reason that not everyone's right about their particular beliefs about religion, and not everyone should keep their religious beliefs private, Because if that is who God is, then he would change everything in my life. I couldn't help but have him come out in my life through what I say and through what I do. It also stands to reason that you wouldn't say that no one should share their belief because if God is the one who gives and takes away life and he is supreme and he has changed me and my life is radically moved because of it, then it wouldn't be right for you to be the one who demands that I stay silent about my life. This is a long way to say Once you utter the words, no one should share their opinion about religion, you are sharing your opinion about religion. You are doing the very thing you say no one should do. But in fact, there's a little bit of like open-minded, loving arrogance to that claim because also what you're saying is there's one person in the world who does understand religion, and it's my belief that everyone's kind of wrong and everyone's kind of right, and the only person who should share their belief are the people saying that no one should share their belief. It's like going to a kid's party and then just walking around with a needle, And you you see all kinds of beautiful balloons and you go, oh, you like your God? Boom. You're kind of right and you're kind of wrong. And it's kind of like walking over to this other person's opinion and going, oh, you think you have an opinion. Don't say it out loud because I've agreed with myself that you're not allowed to share it. It, it, Its intent is loving, but its application is arrogant, even maybe unintentionally. But the pagan world always has so many competing gods that it's so popular back then and today to say, can we just get along and say no one's right about anything? But Paul's saying, but what if it's true? Wouldn't that mean that you could just totally be honest, out in front, sharing your life and being honest about what you see as true, and then couldn't we just have a dialogue about these things? That's in essence what Paul is doing. So he went into Athens. And so my question for you as some application is, what is your Athens? God has given you a unique experience, a unique relational world, unique experiences in your life, and a unique personality, unique giftedness. In what way, with what group of people, in what field of study or of vocation are you influential? 
The question would be, how can you then leverage and kind of live out the gospel, changing your heart in that place of influence? This is kind of a bad metaphor, but um, uh, it'll play out. I hope it makes sense to you. My wife grew up in Africa, and she was like a missionary kid. They grew up in a, a, a building in a rural village, way just in the jungle, middle of Africa. No windows, no doors, just kind of a brick building with a tin roof. And uh, that was their life for a number of years. It was common in, their, uh, in her childhood to be kind of falling asleep at a certain time of the year, and then somebody would wake up in the house and say, we have ants. And these are like, these aren't your normal ants. These are like Congo ants. They're like, they're as big as a human, you know, or at least I imagine them that way. And, uh, and they, would, they would flood into the house and there's no way to keep them out because the front door is a curtain of fabric. And uh, even if you had a door there, they'd find their way in and they would come in in these big, thick streams of ants, like crawling over one another. And then they would get to a certain place in the house and then they would break into smaller separate streams. And then somebody in the house would say, we have ants. You would kind of shake them off of you as best you can. And then uh, everyone in the house would just have to walk outside of the house and sleep outside or like sleep on a table and hope that, um, this is getting too graphic, but hope that they don't just like crawl on the ceiling and fall on you. Oh gosh, I hate ants so much. So that's, that was just normal life for them in the Congo. The metaphor breaks down because what I'm trying to say is we are a bit like these ants. Not in the sense that people hate when we're around. I hope that's not the case for our church. Um, but if you kind of uh, ignore the fact that nobody wants ants in their house, the thing that the ants would do as they come into the house is they would break up into these places. They would get all in the cupboards, all into the different nooks and crannies of the house. But then all of a sudden you would see from these streams of ants, they would start carrying out big chunks of old food, big dead bugs that had been behind the chairs and behind the couch and underneath the rug. And they would carry out every piece of dust, hair, every little thing. And they would just all of a sudden purify the house from every little gross doodad that had been stuck behind the couch for months. In a sense, we have that experience as Christians in our culture, in our cities, in your vocation, in your home, that we come in to a city of Brea, city of Orange County, um, and we are in a place that's a bit like Athens. Like we're in the LA Metroplex, Working in vocations, raising kids, mentoring people, loving people of different opinions. Wouldn't you say that you run into people of different opinions on a daily basis? Just like Paul was in Athens. And like little ants, my prayer is that our church kind of goes into all the different nooks and crannies of our society. Once we kind of hands in the middle and break from Sunday morning church and go out into these places. And now my prayer for us is that we have a purifying effect a redeeming effect in that city. And all of a sudden, people in our city might say, why are there so many churches in Brea? It's like every 10 feet, there's another church. Um, or, or why do people insist on going to church on Sunday mornings? But then all of a sudden, in our city and in our workplaces, we are carrying out the things that make it a, a redeemed, renewed, cleaner, more beautiful house. That's what it looks like to be a missional Christian. And so the question is, what place do you fit? What place has God put you? In what relational world do you live to be of influence? You'll notice once uh, Paul did that, he, in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue. Again, I'm trying to equip us from Acts 17 about how to live missionally. And Paul reasoned with them. 
the, the, the word says dialogue. It's, it's, it just means dialogue. It's just like you talked with these people. And then it says in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. You can imagine Paul not just stepping in on the street corner and preaching and then leaving, but living with them for some time. And I think we think of a missions trip as uh, you, you raise some money for it, and then you really pray about it, you do your missions trip, and then you're done. But Paul viewed every day of his life as a missions trip. That's what a missional Christian does. Like I can be missional in another country, I can be missional in my workplace, and I'll be missional with my kids, and we're just always on mission. There's no separation between a missions trip and everyday life. There's no, there's no separation between my faith and my workplace. That's what it looks like to be missional. Paul's not gearing up for a missions trip to Athens. He's living day by day in a dialogue with whoever happens to be there. And the result, of course, as we said, he goes into the Areopagus. My only fear in bringing this up to you is that we might be, in, when we read about Paul's life, we might be confused to think that we need to be like Paul. Like you're a computer programmer, and then all of a sudden you need to stand up from your computer and just be like, people of this startup tech company, you know? And like, you don't need to exhibit the exact same gifts as Paul. The question is, how can you exhibit the person you are and the gifts that you are and the way God is working in you in your workplace? Don't be confused to say you have to be Paul. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be this kind of missionary. You have to be a missionary in the way that you are called and you are gifted in every nook and cranny of our society in which God has placed you. And if you want to do that, the remainder of our discussion, I set this up with a pretty long point number one. The remainder of our discussion is just how do we do that? If you want to live missionally, First, we have to feel for the people that Paul felt for, then recognize those idols, and then lastly, uh, present Jesus in the resurrection. So, you'll notice in verse 16, again, in the beginning of our passage, that Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Greatly distressed. The, the Greek word here is paroxysmos. Uh, I say Greek because, again, I paid for the education. You at least have to like, you know, I'm kidding. But it's not important outside of saying this, that paroxysm is like uh, the medical term for like a seizure. And uh, that's the word that we're dealing with here. When Paul shows up to the city, he notices a lost culture of people worshiping and, then, and, and like their lives are reflecting what they worship. And it's just kind of a mess. And he shows it to that city and he's greatly distressed but it's one word in the original text. It's paroxysmos. He has a physical seizure, emotional response for these people because he loves them. In the end, this is an example, and it's such a unique word choice to even put in that sentence that what it's cueing for us is that Paul had a mix of indignation saying, I don't like what these people are doing. It's bad for themselves. It's bad for society and compassion. He wasn't just indignant and angry and saying, I, I can't wait to tell these people that they're wrong. But he also had compassion and mercy and love and kind of patience with them. After all, he reasoned with these people in the synagogue and in the marketplace day by day. There was a relationship there. So Paul felt for these people who were far from God. If you don't feel for people who are far from God, it might be because you're just preoccupied about getting the income so that you can get some stability and it's, your life's just all about your plans right now. I get that. Like we just had a kid. It's just all about making sure that baby's still breathing, you know? Like you just look over every 30 seconds to make sure the thing is still alive, you know? He, it's a he, it's not a thing. 
And like, I get it. There's preoccupations that happen in life. If over the course of your faith, there's not a season of missional or there's not a prayer, God, help me to be effective in this season right now as you've, uh, where you've placed me, then maybe you're missing something and your life needs to be less about you because you're, maybe you're not feeling for people who are far from God. My prayer is that we have that same mix of indignation and compassion that Paul had for the Athenians. What I mean to say is, um, some of you are really good at indignant. Some of you are great at telling people when they're wrong. You don't mind disagreeing with folks, and you don't mind ruffling a few feathers. So, uh, but the problem is, if you don't love those people, they'll find out very quickly. And some of you are very compassionate people, very patient people, but some of you might lack the courage to ever say something that might even be interpreted as negative. After all, Paul does say elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 1, where he says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's always going to be an offensiveness to the, to the gospel. I mean, Paul even manages this in his sermon. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious. He's very respectful. And then what does he say after that? He's saying, I see that you guys worship a temple to an unknown God. You're ignorant of the very thing that you're even trying to do. He's saying, why are you even spending your time? You're noticing he's confronting them with indignation. He's saying, it doesn't even make sense. And he's saying, but, I, but I'm here. I'm here to talk. If you have any questions, I'll be around after the sermon to talk. That's basically what Paul is saying to the Areopagus. The only way you're going to break out from being a compassion person who never has courage or an indignation person who never has mercy is if you do what Paul does, which is to look at the cross. As you believe in Jesus, you will find the right mix of those two things. Without looking at the cross, you will not find them. Because when you're a Christian, at the core of what it means to be a Christian is a person who has been saved because of Christ's death on the cross. And on the cross, God himself exhibited indignation, righteousness, and judgment over the broken, unjust world that we live in, but also compassion and love and mercy. Because God was so just that he had to do something about injustice. He had to do something about murder, genocide, abuse. He's a just God. If God did nothing about those things, you would not see him as a supreme God or good because he wouldn't do anything about evil. So he had to pour out wrath on sin. But God is so merciful. On the cross, we see him so loving, so patient with us, that the way out of us being destroyed because of the injustice we create was that he put it on his own son. God himself has the perfect mix of indignation and compassion. To the extent that you see that on the cross, Jesus dying for you, a person who deserves judgment, but has also been given pardon, who deserves alienation from God, but has been given an eternal relationship where you have joy and hope every day, no matter what your circumstances are. Until you see both of those things, you will not have the courage to speak up. You won't have the love and compassion to know when to be patient. So if you're looking for that motivation to live missionally in our world, look at the cross. Three, Paul recognized he saw idols. Again, in verse 16, it says that uh, he was greatly to distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, there's kind of, again, a weird word choice in this sentence that uh, the word is theoreo. It's um, to theorize. 
Paul, there's other Greek words for seeing things. Like there's a couple of them. He didn't just see. He theorized. He saw underneath the situation. And that's why if you look in verse 22, he even mentions it in his sermon. He says, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious people. He's saying, I understand that you guys worship quite a bit. And you can imagine the people of the Areopagus hearing that. Paul respectfully saying, people of Athens, I see you are very religious. And they might say, oh yes, we're very spiritual, but we're not religious. Or yes, oh yes, we do talk quite a bit about all the different ideas about how one can gain inner peace and inner joy. And that's how Paul sets it up to say, I see that you worship something. May I present for you then a God that is better, a God that is greater, a God that is more trustworthy. And this would have been like commonplace because if you rolled into Athens, you would have seen all these temples, all these statues, all these different sources, objects of worship. And so it wouldn't have been any surprise to those people for Paul to have noticed that the city was full of idols. But an idol is more than just that. An idol is anything that you put your identity in. An idol is anything that you put your self-worth in. And that's why if we talk about idols, maybe if you're not a religious person or you're here and you're not a Christian, you might think, um, I don't really worship. I'm not really a worshipful person. I don't really like place my identity in some sort of God. I don't have little statues in my car, in my house. Um, But if Paul were here, he would say, hold on a minute. Let's theorize behind this a bit. Do you, on some level, put your core identity in your job success? Then it's your idol. Do you, on some level or to a great extent, say, as long as I can, as long as I know I'm beautiful, then I'll feel worthy in this world. That's an idol. And Paul's not just picking at the things that you like. He's saying it's so common. It's the natural mode of the human heart to say, I will look for something for my significance. Paul is simply saying, take that object of worship, destroy it, and now place that affection and that worship on the one thing that is worthy of worship. And now you're worshiping God and growing in your faith and you have a new source of joy. So there was a God of partying, and to those God, the the God of partying, Paul is saying, if you want true joy, if you want true pleasure, understand that God, Jesus died on the cross for your joy so that it could last for eternity. Or to the people who are worshiping their nation state, Paul would say, your worship of your country is making you racist. It's making you abuse people who don't live within your borders So loosen up your love for patriotism and now love the true God and it'll make you a better citizen. It'll make you more just. It'll make you less violent. It'll make you less racist because nations are great. Monies are great. Uh, Sex is great. Pleasure is great. They all make lousy gods. And that's why when we shift our worship from these things that let us down, from these things that are temporary and from these little G gods that are dead, now we're freed up to live with something eternal and powerful, a God that, that knows the truth and can be indignant about it, but also has compassion for our heart. So Paul recognizes that underneath all this activity in the marketplace is worship. Worship statue, worship success, worship money, worship pleasure. So as an application, What are the idols that are worshipped in the place that you live? Do you have a group of friends that are all moms and the creeping idol of worshipping your kids can kind of come in? 
Do you work at a place where the expectation at your, at your marketplace is you have to worship this job, otherwise you're probably not going to keep it for long? What are the idols that are worshiped in your place? Actually, you know what? More important question. What's, what are the idols that you worship? The things you worship along with Jesus. I have like a little test I want to give you. What thing, if you lost it, would make you want to not live anymore? Second question, what do you worry about when you have nothing else to worry about? Like when objectively things are okay, what do you still worry about? Chances are that's what you worship. That's where you're finding your significance, where you're finding your future and your hope. And what do you think about when you're just like doing the thing where you're going like, I hope I go to sleep soon and you're just lying in bed? What's the thing you think about? Chances are. That's an indication about what you worship. Let me close with this. Paul presented Jesus and the resurrection, an object of worship that when we put our affections on him, he doesn't let us down. When we're looking for truth, he has it. And when we're looking for compassion, we already see Christ dying on the cross so that we know God loves us. In uh, verse 18, it says, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I love that Paul is able to stand up in the Areopagus and say, listen, a thing happened in history. If you don't believe me, go ask around. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. saying Jesus died, he's resurrected from the dead. Ask about it. Like if you, if you don't know, this isn't just a religious belief that might give you inner peace. Paul doesn't make that promise. He doesn't say, if you believe this, it's going to make your life a lot better, or you'll get richer, or you'll, you'll, just be, like, you'll elevate like three inches off the ground. You'll just have so much zen in your brain that that's just like what my religion is going to do for you. He says, there is a thing that happened, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And if you believe it, your life will be changed. That's what he says. He's saying, I have a message for you. And if you believe it, if you throw your life into the hands of God because of it, your life will be radically changed forever. And then he preaches Jesus. He doesn't preach complex, weird theological arguments. He doesn't present a system of belief. And so when I say gospel, I'm not saying like, here's five bullet points you have to believe. If you check all of the five boxes, then you're saved and you can know that you go to heaven. He's presenting not just a framework of philosophy, he's presenting a person. A person against whom there is no credible argument, but it's a person, Jesus Christ, who was the love of God, who was the gospel of God. He's presenting a person who, when you look at his life, you see the mix of truth and righteousness and holiness and compassion and love for us. So we can do what Paul does. My hope is that we live out that because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Some examples, I was talking to someone in the last few weeks who goes to Ambassador and they said, um, I joined the homeowners association of my housing development. Great place for me to promote human flourishing in my neighborhood and to get to know some people to talk about Jesus. That's a great way. God's placed you in homeowners association. That sounds like the boring, boringest mission I've ever heard of, but he, he's probably good at managing money, so that works out. I talked to another ambassador person who said they are in the marketplace and uh, he or she noticed some unethical practices from the business, went to the higher ups, went to the, the top brass and said, I see this as an ethical dilemma. 
risks his or her job to say, just my personal conviction tells me it's hard for me to get on board with this because we're not treating people fairly. Is there a solution where our business can still make money, but we live ethically? That's a, that's a gospel framework for work. I talked to another person who shared Jesus in his office so much that his boss said, listen, dude, you got to stop. And he said, you just talk about Jesus too much. Can you just dial it down? Like, you're at an 11, can we go to a three? And he turned that conversation into a conversation about Jesus, which I thought was great. But it also apologized to say, sorry, sometimes I get overzealous. You're not the first person to say this, and I apologize. But everyone in his work knows now that he is a Christian who loves Jesus, but is also willing to say, listen, I don't mean to force anything on you. I'll get back to my, you know, get back to my work. These are all fantastic non-go-to-Athens-and-preach examples of ways that we can live out the gospel. That's who we are as a church. My prayer is that we continue to live that out as we grow in our faith. Let's pray.